0: Hey there, welcome back. It's Business of Film, episode 19. My name's Jesse Eichmann, and you're listening to a crafttruck.com podcast. Today's episode is with Mr. Mark Erman. If you don't know Mark or his uh, history in the business, uh, he started out on the studio side and then moved over to the indie film side. Uh, A long career with Lionsgate and with ThinkFilm and now with his own distribution company, Paladin. Uh, this is a guy who has a lot to share. And uh, believe me when I say you will get a lot out of this episode. He is a truly knowledgeable person and expert in the field of distribution. So it was not only a pleasure to speak with Mark, but to also hear about how he thinks about the industry today. And uh, just trust me when I say that uh, that you will get something valuable out of this podcast. So I hope you enjoy it, and I hope there are some takeaways for you. Thank you for listening. Episode 19, Mr. Markerman. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jesse. Good to talk to you. Uh, so let's just, uh, just for those who may not familiar with uh, your history in the business, maybe you can just kind of give us the... The cool's notes version of, of how you got started in the business and you know what brought you to, to where you are today running the you know, your your distribution company, Paladin.
1: Okay. Well, I've been in the you know, the film distribution and marketing business basically my entire life and literally straight out of college. And considering that I'm a mature individual, we're talking a long career. It's something I always knew I was interested in and growing up in New York I focused very early on trying to find a path into what struck me as being a very impenetrable business. So, like, my summer jobs when I was in college were variety, and that that actually enabled me to sort of figure out what was what and who was who and who did what and where. And so as soon as I graduated college, I got a job at United Artists, and I worked there for about eight years in international publicity and it was at a a really exciting time for the company. It was a sort of peak, um, for, you know, the Woody Allen movies beginning with, um, Sleeper and going all the way through Stardust Memories, uh, worked on a bunch of James Bond movies, films like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Rocky. Um, I could go on and on. Uh, in any event from there, I moved over to, um, Columbia Pictures, and for a couple of years I was in charge of marketing for their specialty division, and then I graduated into mainstream Columbia, and I was uh, uh, vice president in charge of publicity uh, for Columbia Pictures, and again, worked on big studio movies, uh, obviously like, you know, Ghostbusters and Karate Kid and The Last Emperor, and... Um, so this is in the early... Suns-
0: yeah, so this is it the early
1: 80s? Been, it would have been in the, in the um, yeah, in the 70s into the 80s. And then um, it, it, it was after seven years of Columbia Pictures, during which time I went through six studio heads and seven, seven separate marketing administrations, I came to the realization that although these companies were big and solid and built to last, that in fact um, there was no stability whatsoever in these companies. It was extraordinary how, you know, one day the company could get sold, another day they could announce that they wanted to lower overhead by 25% and they just fired hundreds of people. So that's sort of when I went into the independent film business because I figured that even though it was perhaps less stable, it was also in a weird way safer because you could see the iceberg from a distance instead of riding on the Titanic and having it sink because you were too big to see the iceberg. So um, I ran a PR firm for a number of years specializing in doing campaigns on independent films. And after doing that for a number of years and with great success, one of my clients, a small Canadian company called CFP, uh, hired me to run their distribution company. Uh, we changed our name to Lionsgate shortly thereafter. And with some, uh, Canadian colleagues, we, um we ran that company. Uh, after about four years of doing that, the company sort of changed plan, uh, changed hands and changed direction. It moved to California. It wanted to be less independent and much more mainstream and wide release instead of specialty film, and so with the same little bunch of Canadian colleagues, we started Think Film, which was a terrific company, ran that for seven years, and um, unfortunately, that too sort of came apart at the seams because we sold it to somebody who was not really worthy to um, own a company or any of the many companies he bought and ran into the ground, and it was at that point that um, I found that I had a team of people, a skill set, a recognizable identity in the business. I was known to be a very good marketer, a very good distributor, with a, a very good um, ability to deal with talent and to make filmmakers feel safe and comfortable and to work collaboratively with them. And I started the company I currently own and run called Paladin, which is about four and a half years old. And what we do here is um, we distribute films and uh, work on the the marketing and um, placement of films into the marketplace. But because things are very, very different these days, both economically and practically, we're actually hired by filmmakers or rights holders to distribute their films. They pay us a fee for our services, and they pay all the costs for distribution. We don't acquire the films; we just render services unto them and get them out into the world. And it's it's strangely a very good business because there are so many films that are looking for uh, a you know, special handling, and there are. So many dramatic shifts in the distribution business at the moment that um, nobody can even keep up with. So the fact that we're flexible and that we can do not what we do, but we can do what the film at hand needs makes us um, very desirable to a lot of filmmakers. So, you know, we release at this point, I would say upwards of a dozen films a year, We um, do a lot of consultancy work. We work in partnership with ancillary distributors, and we just, you know, get the job done.
0: And I want to, I want to, that's me. First of all, I mean, there's such a breadth of history there. And I want to talk more specifically about the business model of of Paladin uh, for sure during, you know, during our conversation. But just because you've had such an experience going from the, really the studio world, to the the rise of independent film from your time at at Lionsgate then to Think Film and now your own company. I'm wondering if you can just kind of give a little bit of a perspective on how you see the distribution landscape having changed in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. I mean, you you you've had such an interesting perch to kind of see the the shifting sands. I'm just wondering if you can kind of give us a little bit of your perspective on the on how you see the distribution landscape having changed over the course of the last decade?
1: Well, it's become, like so many other things in our society, very decentralized. Um, it used to be very formulaic and very rigid. There were um, you know, the theatrical windows and films were released by companies, big or small. They played in theaters for as long as there was demand and that was often over a year. And then they were available through various forms of home entertainment. And do remember that home entertainment is something that didn't even exist until the early 1980s, but essentially that was it. You saw movies at home and then you saw them a a full year later on either pay TV or you would buy, um, you know, first a videotape and then they became DVDs and that was sort of it. Um, now, there are an almost infinite and ever-changing and increasing number of ways in which to see movies uh, because of the digital revolution. The other thing that changed because of the same digital revolution is that movies can be made very inexpensively and it no longer takes a large infrastructure or a a lot of people or a lot of money to make a movie. So there are more feature films being created now than ever, and some of them at staggeringly low cost. So what we have is uh, an enormous increase in the amount of product and an enormous increase in the way in which films are consumed. So instead of it being rigidly controlled by gatekeepers, it's completely customized. People literally program their own entertainment. Um, films made 75 years ago are constantly available for digital download, Um So every new film that opens is not only competing with every other new film that opens, it is literally competing with the history of cinema. You wanna see Citizen Kane, which was made in 1941, and which is probably the best movie ever made, you can see it today. You don't have to go to a museum, you don't have to go to a store and rent a DVD, you can sit on your couch and press a button. So everything is now about um, a la carte, and the whole notion of, um, you know, prepared meals served on a schedule because that's how the industry dictates it needs to be consumed is flown out the window, which is both a wonderful thing for the consumer because there's a total democratization of what any individual can see when they want to see it, how they want to see it. But it's also a nightmare because how the hell do you find films? How do you even choose? And for filmmakers, it's both an enormous opportunity to create and distribute films that never existed before. But again, the competition is um, greater than it ever was for people's attention and time. So it's a lot of moving parts which have yet to align. They may never again align. And so it's very difficult to take a snapshot at any given moment and say, this is what the film business is. This is what um, film distribution is. This is what film production is because it's constantly changing. You take a picture of something in motion, what you get is a big blur and that's where we are today. It's very, very blurry, but we have no choice but to move forward and hope we don't bump into things.
0: Uh, you know, what you mentioned there about, you know, being able to compete with every film in the in the history of cinema, personally, I've never even thought of that as the State of the Union. But in, in thinking about it, you're, I mean, you, you really have encapsulated the world that we live in in a very clear way. Uh, you, what you were talking about, though, from... I guess from the perspective of publicity and getting people to, you know, be aware of one's film, of a filmmaker's film, and your history having basically, you know, cut your teeth in the world of publicity for major uh, films and independent films. How important and how critical is now just the the not the P and A spend, but the publicity aspect to getting. You know, indie films recognized. Uh, do, you, do you do you see one being more important than the other right now, or are they just as important? Can you accomplish everything that you would want to accomplish just by having an amazing publicist on your film, or do you need to spend the dollars to break through? I'm kind of just wanted to get your perspective on that that equation or that that balancing between the two sides.
1: well, the the great misconception is that publicity is free. Um, technically, if attention is paid to your movie by the journalistic community, um, it's free. You don't pay for that attention, but of course you have to spend a lot of money to hire publicists to create materials. (coughs) Excuse me. I have a very bad cough. That is my uh, Sundance legacy this year, and it's aggravated by conversation, so... (laughs) You'll, so. be, you'll be hearing this. Just just ignore it. It's a, another casualty of the film industry. <laughs> um, but the, the fact is that publicity is important. It's, um, I think, of paramount importance. It is really the best way to get information out about a film. But the the, the point is that publicity, like every other aspect of the business and every other aspect of the way we communicate as a culture and as, um, individuals, it has changed. Um, a number of periodicals and publications that devoted a great deal of attention to film at various stages, even from the moment they went into production have vanished. Um, the film critical community is eroding, um, newspapers and magazines are either um, cutting back so that they you know they, they have fewer um, writers on staff many of whom are not trained in film culture film history criticism or aesthetics they may have one general entertainment writer who will cover theater books horse racing you name it in major cities, throughout America, this is becoming increasingly commonplace and the information has migrated to no small degree to the internet, which is again an enormous bonus because one can obtain information rapidly and from, again, a seemingly infinite number of sources, but it's like everything else, a lot of noise and one has to cut through it in general. Um, The more things change, the more they stay the same. An excellent film that gets a considerable amount of critical acclaim and that strikes the imagination of the journalistic community is probably going to have a better chance of penetrating and becoming part of the discourse and um, uh, have a better chance of becoming culturally central and enduring than a bad or negligible film. But the fact is there are a lot of bad and negligible films that do very well because they're propelled by a lot of money. And there are a lot of really excellent films that don't do well because they're either too specific or there's not enough time in our rapidly moving culture for them to gain traction and develop a following. One of the reasons why I remain so committed to the notion of theatrical distribution as an important um, and and enduring uh, component of the life of a movie is that it is really the one element that allows a film, or allows most films, to become visible, to get written about, to get reviewed, because they show up in theaters. And whether they show up in a few theaters or they show up in a lot of theaters, is it, it's sort of the only way that they 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 sort of um impact upon the the information universe. And if a film is just plunked down, um, you know in, in, in a way films used to go straight to DVD or straight to video before that. Now, if they go straight to digital, they're one of four or five, 600 movies that people could see at any given point, um, not to mention the extraordinary amount of other kinds of filmed com- content, whether it's television shows. I mean, you know, look, we, we all own TVs. Uh, I can sit at home and watch shows that were broadcast last year. Um, you know, if I go into... This window or that window on my cable dial, I can see the first season of some HBO series, the second season, the third season, and this stuff is good. And that can take me, you know, many many nights. Um, You know, we do these marathons sometimes. So there's so much going on, and there's so much wonderful content readily available at our fingertips. That if there isn't a really concerted publicity campaign, then films are virtually invisible. Now, do you understand that publicity isn't now just a review in a major newspaper, um, a feature in a magazine? It's many other kinds of information, and people are getting their information in very, very specific ways. There are people who... Um, you know, read particular blogs. There are people who um, go to uh, aggregators like Rotten Tomatoes to find out whether a film is well thought of or not. There are all sorts of new uh, iterations of the same old principles of information, information. It used to be that you could only see a trailer in a movie theater and so you went to the movies and they, they would tell you what movies would be opening next month or six months from now you'd see a trailer now trailers are um, mostly consumed online so instead of having thousands of people see it in a weekend in a movie theater in Manhattan let's say there are hundreds of thousands or you know certainly tens of thousands of people who are in a position to see that same trailer and exclusive clips and other kinds of material uh, on their favorite website, and so that's publicity. So it, it, it changes, and we have to change with it. Um, the publicists have to change with it. It's not just you know the same small handful of periodicals that one has relied on historically. It, you know there there are new voices every day. There's also interpersonal communication between Facebook and Twitter the the whole word of mouth thing well, which ooh. is another you know that, that that has changed enormously I used to get um, texts from my daughter um, she went to college in New York and didn't have any classes on Fridays and she went opening day to see virtually every movie she was interested in, and within 15 minutes, I would get a text telling me this movie's fabulous or this movie sucks, um, and she wasn't just telling me, she was telling her friends. That's a, a word-of-mouth component that didn't exist before. You used to you know, go to the movies on the weekend, go to work Monday morning, and it was what we used to call the water-cooler effect, not that we ever stood around the water-cooler literally, but... You'd talk about the movie that you saw this weekend, you'd recommend it, and you, you know, if, if you were convincing, people would go see it. It's much more instantaneous, and you can, with the flick of one button, by putting something up on your Facebook timeline, you can let a thousand people know all at once that a film struck your fancy or not. So, so
0: the, the, the you actually, know, what it, can it, I say? The, no, it, it's all, I mean, this is. Really, really, really interesting stuff, and I, it kind of it makes me want to ask you where you sit just because we're talking right now about social and and driving audiences and building audiences, where you sit on the whole notion of those self distribution platforms where people can now get their films distributed. By by means of you know those self distribution online platforms like Tug or Gather or uh, working with uh, you know their social communities to to self finance and then self distribute so I mean, there, there's a whole lot of this <clears throat> this I don't know this generation right now where people feel like okay I can do it I can do it myself I can build my own audience I can get it distributed there's there's the means. The mechanics to get it done—it's never existed before. Uh, But you know, with your experience in the business, I'd like to know—you know—how do you how do you feel about that? How do you feel about that that whole movement towards self distribution?
1: Well, in a sense, what I do is um, an example of self distribution. In that, if the filmmakers or the rights holders—excuse me—didn't come to me with the required amount of money those films would not be distributed in many instances or they would be distributed in a way that the filmmakers in question would find disadvantageous so i am not only a beneficiary of this new diy trend uh, i'm also a practitioner of it and i'm constantly looking for new ways to mix and match modes of distribution that are tailor-made to specific films. Um, The the tug-and-gather thing, which is really theatrical on demand, meaning that you make a film available via a website, you still assume the responsibility for marketing and promoting the film and creating an awareness and an appetite for it. And if you have succeeded in doing that, then people go to Tug or Gather, and they request the screening in their community, um, Gather or Tug will uh, contact the theater and create a deal, and if enough individuals subscribe to attend that screening, it tips over into reality, and it takes place, and everybody makes money. The filmmakers make money, the theaters make money, and the um, the company Tag or Gather <clears throat> makes money, and a film gets to play one night only in a community that might otherwise not have seen that film. But do understand that that works for films for which there has to be a demand, and there has to be a reason for people to gather, get together, um, and it has to be, you know, at a minimum about sixty-five people, and to organize as a group. So it's a very specific kind of movie that these mechanisms work well for. Um, but there are, you know, people who are distributing films off of, you know, for download off of their websites. Um, there are a number of entities that um, have players, you know, um, whether it's Distripy and and several other kinds of companies where you, um, in a sense, you pay money. You can you can pay. I don't know, probably under $2,000 and have your movie available for streaming off of Amazon uh, just by converting it to, you know, their digital format. But once again, the burden is on you to create an awareness and an appetite. Otherwise, you're one of tens of thousands of films available on Amazon. How would anybody find it? So now the mechanism, the mechanism, and there are many, many portals, that curate films and um, you know have developed a fan base and an audience. Some of them are subscription; you pay you know a hundred dollars a year, or you pay X number a-, a month, and you go and they put together a catalog, if you will, of uh, films to which they have obtained non-exclusive streaming rights. Um, it could be you know old classic films, it could be old Japanese films, it could be you name it. And people go there, um, and it, it, it's a boutique approach to film, digital film consumption that is very interesting. You know, it, you could go to a department store where absolutely everything is available, and you can shop there, looking at, you know, the full range of choices and benefiting from the discounts that are associated with um, mass market uh, buying and selling. Or you could walk into a lovely little store in your neighborhood and see something that the owner of the store thought was beautiful and that other people would like and you can buy it there. So it, it's, but you know, this is all in a way, um, an example of the DIYing of it because you're no longer at the mercy of one entity to whom you sell all rights either in perpetuity or for 20 years or for 12 years or whatever. um, Because now there are so many different modes of consumption that if you give it all away to a single rights holder, um, you know, a single licensor, then you don't know that tomorrow there isn't going to be a new way of seeing movies that could be a windfall for your kind of movie. So, People are, are mixing, matching, cutting up, uh, doing it themselves, but it's very hard work. Um, producers really need to know what they're doing. Um, and it, it, it's as hard to get a film out into the public as it is to make a movie. And it can even be harder and take a lot longer. But if you're in for a penny, you've got to be in for not a pound, but like a ton and make, you know, otherwise it doesn't even pay to make a movie. Every once in a while, people make a movie and they go to a film festival and everybody loves the movie and somebody buys that movie for millions of dollars and then spends millions of their dollars to sell that movie into the audience. And if that movie is Little in the Sunshine or Slum Millionaire or you know, 12 years a slave, take your pick. Um, It seems to work out very well for everybody, but even one tier down, and certainly two or three or four tiers down, if there isn't a bidding war, if the check isn't for millions of dollars, but if it's just for, um, you know, a a token uh, license fee, if the amount of money and effort that this company is expending isn't um, sufficient, then you could be worse off with a distributor than you would.
0: You lost Mark. Maybe my connection went down. Do you want to just pick where you were? Yeah, so um, the the, the fact
1: is that one can do better financially if one holds on to the film and distributes it through the various mechanisms available um, oneself, rather than selling it off, and that that's what a lot of filmmakers are discovering. But make no mistake about it: it's hard work to do so, and it—it's it, really. Um, oh, and I was talking about Kickstarter and how people talk about raising money to. Um, produce films on Kickstarter, and then raising money for P&A on Kickstarter. It's not money that falls from heaven. A successful Kickstarter campaign is, again, a marketing undertaking. You have to create a mythology and a folklore for your film. You have to develop friends. You have to offer premiums. You have to um, it's like a beauty pageant. You you have to make your film the prettiest film on the block and people write checks, you know, it, to to see to it that that film can walk the runway. So it...
0: So let's let's actually just then it, talk it about...
1: It's, you, all, it's all work. You
0: know, for, uh, and I, I think that there's, you know, there there's an interesting differentiation between working with the experienced... Distribution company and doing it yourself. So let's actually talk about Paladin and and you know what what differentiates Paladin in the market and and how and how have you set up your company to service the needs of filmmakers?
1: Well, the the joke of it is, is that do it yourself distribution is never done by oneself. Um, well, I take that back. There are actually you know filmmakers who sit in their basements and do social media and contact groups and organizations and sell DVDs out of their basement. Um, Some of them with great success, but it's a full-time job and that film has to have a very targetable audience. If you've made a documentary about antique cars, um, which could be of interest to absolutely nobody, but people who collect and are interested in antique cars, there's actually a way to find all of those people, and contact them and send them all, um, you know, a a copy of the DVD. But if you're doing it yourself, you'll find, and if you look at the case studies of successful um, examples of, quote, DIY distribution, it really means that the filmmakers are retaining their rights and then they're hiring practice professionals like myself, um to to do the work for them so they're not selling the film to a full service distributor they're retaining um the various components that fall under the heading of distribution and and marketing and they're enabling it themselves they're funding it themselves but they actually have people working with them um, so it's it's so rarely do it yourself it's it's sort of um, paying for it yourself and working with uh, professionals—you know—it's—it's—it—it's—it's um, it, 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 right. it's, it's very commonplace these days. And not only are there several different companies that are built the way I am built, but there are several um, there are different ways to do it. You know, you, you can hire different kinds of people to get it all done. We're uh, a team of people. A small team, but a team of people who do all of it. And some filmmakers prefer to slice it up and hire somebody to just book theaters, somebody else to do publicity, somebody else to do advertising. But they want to steer the ship. In other instances, they want to work with, um, you know, a, a company like my own and have us bring a proper distribution sensibility to it, and we orchestrate all of the elements and we deal with organization, oversight, and strategy. Um, you know, so it, it, it's very mix and match.
0: Which is kind of the... the. I mean, th- that is the industry that we live in right now. Everything right now seems to be, if you go the the this quote-unquote DIY route. It's all mix and match. The platform that you view the content on, whether or not you even put it in theaters or not. Uh, actually, that's an interesting question for you. The the whole notion of, are you looking at, at movies right now specifically with a theater, like any movie you take on has to be theatrical to start so that you can drive the publicity and drive the audience and then you know move it over to digital? Or are you looking at some films and just making a decision that, you know what, this is not going to have a theatrical life, we're just going to focus on a digital life?
1: Well, if I'm involved, by definition, there's always some sort of theatrical component, um, because that's why people retain my services. Um, Well, there are exceptions. There are instances where I'm involved in the marketing and the strategy on films and I lodge them with a digital distributor and, and sort of hand it over and pass the baton and there hasn't been a theatrical component. But in most instances, if I'm involved, it's to orchestrate a theatrical, even if it's a limited theatrical, that then sets up the, um, the rest of the film's life. Sometimes, it's simultaneous. The theatrical will happen at the same time as the digital distribution, and it's a single marketing effort. We do that on a regular basis, and then sometimes it's a dedicated and discreet theatrical window of at least ninety days, and we, you know, the film is only available in theaters for ninety days, and then it moves into the ancillary world. But we've you know, created all of the materials, we've created a presence for the film, we've done all of the publicity, all of the marketing, and it gets handed over to a digital distributor, who will then benefit from the fact that the film has lingered in the marketplace as a theatrical entity for however long it has.
0: So just to get a little bit of practical things that filmmakers can think about, and I guess out of, to a certain extent, personal curiosity, what are the uh, without asking you how much you know does it you know how much is uh, you know or how long is a piece of string how how much money should filmmakers be thinking about that they would need to firewall in order to actually execute you know a theatrical release now that might just be uh, and again i realize a certain degree of you know every film is different but if someone wants to get the film in the minimum number of markets and at least do some kind of a theatrical release with it What are the costs involved and what should filmmakers be thinking about, you know, before they kind of, you know, just, just, you know, go all left brain and go, oh, yeah, we're going to put this in theaters and to turn around the next day and go, oh, I didn't realize it was going to cost that much. Like what practically should filmmakers be thinking about in terms of the physical cost of distribution, uh, you know, but before they start thinking about, okay, I'm going to I want this in theaters. Well, the first thing they should think about is what their goals are. Um Some people need
1: their films to be seen for, you know to, to sort of affect the architecture of their careers to get themselves on the map. Some people need their films to be seen to recover the investment that went into production. Um, and it could be all of the above. Um, so the, the, the first issue is how much money can I make back if I'm releasing the film theatrically? Um, And it's a marketing investment, even if the theatrical isn't going to yield very much, if any money, you are putting money into marketing the title uh, in the hope that it isn't then one of those 500 anonymous titles available on, you know, a, a digital menu, but that it is one that people might have heard of and that has developed some sort of profile. So, um, as for what it costs, there's obviously a broad range. It can be done for tens of thousands of dollars, it can be done for hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it can literally be done for millions. We've done it all, and each film, depending upon the elements, the size of the project, the cast, the potential uh, following the theatrical, um, you know, that, that's sort of what determines the spend. In general, it's very difficult to do for um, anything below six figures. So you know you're talking a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars depending upon the number of markets you want to be seen in. And um, depending upon uh, things like talent, um, you know films that have stars are better off sometimes films than films that don't. But working with stars and moving them around so that they can get the publicity that you can get with stars that you can't get with unknowns is expensive. If you have an actress in a movie and she can get on The David Letterman Show, what a wonderful thing, because your movie will be discussed on The David Letterman Show. But if that actress lives in Los Angeles and The David Letterman Show tapes in New York... You have to get her to New York, so that's first-class round-trip airfare. You have to put her up in a hotel. You have to get hair and makeup because she's an actress, and she has to look beautiful. So that one David Letterman segment can cost you tens of thousands of dollars. Um, So talent is very often the poison gift when they're in your movie. They make it easier to publicize, but they it, it come with an enormous price tag. So if you have those elements and you feel obliged to use them, it's going to cost more money than if you have a, a little documentary about wild horses, um, you know, and horses don't do interviews, last time I checked, so there you go. <laughs>
0: Fair enough, fair enough. So uh, we've already blasted through pretty much all the time for this podcast. So I want to just maybe just ask you just for some parting remarks uh, for uh, for filmmakers thinking about, you know, the whole distribution landscape. Uh, you know, what, what are the things that if, if, if you're, uh, I guess, a filmmaker – uh, trying to get their film into a film festival, or just thinking about their film from you know an, a nascent stage, you know what are the what are the early things that filmmakers should be thinking about in terms of distribution uh, today that they can take with them, you know that will eventually and hopefully help them get their film in front of audiences in the future.
1: Well, I think one thing that every filmmaker should think about long and hard is raising money as they raise their production finance to keep in their back pocket so that in the event the distribution landscape doesn't come together in that sort of miraculous way that happens rarely but does still happen, that they're in a position without losing too much momentum to enable some form of distribution themselves. Um, This is something I'm experiencing more and more with filmmakers who take their films to film festivals, they have a premiere, and if, and it, it, it's clear very, very quickly what's gonna happen to that movie, and if you're feeling that it's not hot, that you're gonna get dicked around, that it's gonna take a really long time, and that you're gonna end up with uh, a bad offer from people who are gonna do a bad job, that without wasting any more time because your film has not been publicly exposed at a film festival, you reach into that back pocket, you take that money out, and it's part of what you're investing in the movie from day one, and you spend it on the distribution of the movie, which you then continue to own, and you see to it in a way that only a parent can see to it that your film is taken care of. Um, I think filmmakers spend so much time worrying about getting a film made, they never think about what happens afterwards, and all too often they don't even think about an audience, and therefore they're not making a movie that is particularly audience friendly. Um, so you got to build in from day one um, to everything that you do economically the possibility that um, your investment is only going to be protected if you have a guarantee of distribution. So when you raise a million dollars to make your movie, raise another $200,000, and as I say, put it in the sock drawer, and that way you know your film will get distributed, and that million won't go up in smoke.
0: You know, it's funny. Every time I do one of these interviews, I feel like the absolute gem of the interview comes in the last minute, and I don't know why, but to me that... Is just such important advice, uh, and you rarely hear it because nobody wants to hear it. It's too easy to, to you know to say or to get into trouble during the production process and to you know spend the money. It's too easy to spend and 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 too difficult to put in the soft drawer. Uh, but as you say that you know, if every filmmaker were to do that to some degree, they'd probably be much better off.
1: Well, they, they'd have um, many more options.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And there would be security.
1: So it's the, the best individual piece of advice I can offer to any independent film producers. And, you know, again, it may not come to that. You may be able to sell your film quite advantageously. That's everybody's dream. But how many dreams come true? So, uh, you I know you, the best part is, it.
0: yeah i mean even even if you have that money just sitting around, you can always use it to repay your investors, you know, but at least you, exactly. you your, your investors know that their film is protected one way or the other, either they're getting their money back as a return on their investment right away or it's being used to distribute the film it, it's It's wonderful advice um well, listen, Mark, thank you so much for your time today this i mean there's there are so many little gems here that i I think people can can take away. With them, and uh, I, you know, well, I want to thank you for your time. That this has been this has been great.
1: You yeah, it's my pleasure, and um, thanks for listening.
0: So, just had a, one last question: If people want to connect with Paladin or with you, what is the best way for people to do that?
1: Uh, well, I guess the best way to do that would be through our uh, Facebook page, which is um, uh, you know, Facebook.com, where Paladin Film. Uh, P-A-L-A-D-I-N-F-I-L-M. We're not that hard to find, but that that's the best over-the-transom way to reach out to us.
0: Great. All right. Thank you, Mark.
1: Okay. Take care.